0: This is a crowd podcast.
1: Uh, yes. (laughs) That was a very interesting day. Made me reconsider, like, maybe I got myself in over my head. And these people are crazy. What the hell did I do? We're at the end of the Earth. The very bottom of the world.
2: Antarctica.
1: I was having a conversation with the guys. I was working with. Some of them had spent the winter or so talking with them about what the winter was like, some of them what they were going to do for travels. Antarctica is the driest, coldest continent.
2: A truly beautiful place. Stand in front of say the Barnes Glacier and you're looking at one of the great wonders of the world. But stand there too long, even in the summer, and eventually your body will begin to shut down and you will freeze to death.
1: And within 20 minutes, a guy started approaching from the rear, and I noticed he had a hammer in his hand.
2: This is a place where the sun sets for six months of the year, where winds can reach 200 miles an hour, and temperatures can plummet to minus 80
1: degrees Celsius. It's the most extreme environment you can imagine. And then, as he started approaching, he started speeding up walking with kind of an intensity, the guy sitting next to me yelled at him, said, hey, what are you doing? The staff who live there are scientists
2: and technicians, firefighters and cooks, drivers and doctors. They live in beauty, but also in great isolation. Some
1: of them simply cannot cope. And then he proceeded to lunge forward with the hammer and strike the guy in the head. Um, He tried to I guess dodge and then he fell on the floor and he swung at him again. My thoughts were this guy is going to kill this other guy and I've got to get him out of here. This is the only
2: continent on earth that has no permanent population. Staff are confined to its 70 or so research stations in the name of science. These are some of the most remote places in the world. Places where, as you just heard, people you thought you trusted can do terrible things. On the 11th of May, 2000, a young scientist working on the ice suddenly fell ill. Just 36 hours later, he was dead.
1: It was an an absolute shock. How could this happen? Just a couple days ago, he was his normal self. Rodney Marks was a smart and popular
2: scientist. His sudden death sparked rumours and theories that have continued to this day.
3: The Christchurch coroner has found the death of a young Australian astrophysicist at the South Pole eight years ago was unintentional. He says the possibility of accidental death or foul play couldn't be ruled out without a full and proper investigation of the case, which should have been carried out soon after the death
4: there is a strong possibility that this was intentional.
2: As the years went by and police got involved, people started asking questions about the investigation itself, or lack of, and details started to emerge that strongly suggested an international cover-up.
1: I found it very concerning at that time that there was so little investigation and thought put into it, it was just move on, like people were just trying to brush it under the rug. I've been
2: investigating Rodney's death for two decades, talking to police, medical experts, and friends and colleagues. And I've uncovered startling details about life in Antarctica, where small problems can become big ones very quickly. It's a place that has haunted me since I went there three years after the death of Rodney Marks. I was there as an investigative reporter following the story, but I often found myself diverted from my task by its staggering beauty. I've yearned to return ever since. But as I've learned, this is a continent with secrets. In this series, you'll hear about the strange reality of life on the ice, an isolated existence that can make you go mad. We reveal stories of violence, vicious hammer attacks, and attempted murder. You'll hear tales of heroic pilots, police officers, tormented parents who lost their son, and a giant American corporation appearing to obstruct the search for the truth. This is a mystery set in the coldest, strangest place on earth. And the crucial question at the heart of it all, who's in charge when someone dies in a land that belongs to no one?
4: It's one of the most horrid cases you could have, actually, because it's in the middle of winter. And in the middle of winter, what happens on an Antarctic base stays on an Antarctic base.
2: This is the secret history of Antarctica. It's October 1999. The millennium is almost over, and staff are getting ready for the long journey down to the South Pole. Scientists, carpenters, electricians, cooks, construction workers and a doctor will be spending the next 12 months living in a research station on the ice. Dr. Rodney Marks is an astrophysicist from Australia. He's heading back down for his second winter, having been the year before and loved it. For Dave Zabowski, it's his second time too.
1: Antarctica, uh, it just drew me in the second I heard about it for the adventure. I knew I was going to spend at least five years there, which turned into 14, and it just sucked me in.
2: For his first year at the South Pole, Dave had been the cook. But this year he's going back as a carpenter, helping to build the new research station.
1: The old geodesic dome was getting replaced that had been there from the 70s through the 80s and they needed to upgrade. Also going down is Robert Schwartz, an
2: astrophysicist
3: like Rodney. My field is basically looking at the universe and um, how things out there work, like from stars to galaxies and even beyond that, like the beginning of the universe, the Big Bang. I was taking care of the telescopes I was um, hired for And my job was to keep the telescope um, working. Were there times where the telescope stopped working? Oh yeah, plenty. (laughs) And then it was my task again to get it going.
0: Gene Davidson is also South Pole bound. It was my first time in Antarctica at the South Pole. And um, I spent one winter there, um, all up close to 12 months.
2: Gene's another astrophysicist looking after the telescopes large, weighty instruments about a metre across, which map the sky from atop a sheet of ice that's two miles thick. Gene knows Rodney already. They both studied for their PhDs in Australia. Good looking and at six foot two with long, sometimes dreadlocked hair, Rodney stands out from the other scientists.
0: And it was kind of one of those moments like, hey, I think I recognise you. And he was like, hey, I think I recognise you. And then we, we sort of started chatting. I was quite um, happy at that point because even though I'm from New Zealand, you know, having been um, a student in, in Australia and knowing that there would be an Australian down there that I could connect with, was like, oh, this is kind of cool. In a population of sometimes
2: moody loners, Rodney's known for getting on with everyone. Here's Dave, the carpenter.
1: The second you meet the guy, you know that he's extremely intelligent. He's obviously an astrophysicist, he's very in tune with the world around him and would not bullshit anyone ever. just very easy to be around and uh, joke with.
2: Some people have described him as a bit eccentric. Would you say that was right?
1: Yes, but it depends on the context of you're in Antarctica, for one, which typically is not the norm person, so relative... He was pretty normal, down to earth. Rodney, Dave, Robert, and Gene are four out of about
2: 250 other people headed down south, mainly Americans, mainly men. They're screened beforehand. They have to pass a physical test and a 350-question psychological test. Then, they gather in Colorado for pre-deployment training.
1: So you go through a team-building ropes course. You go through firefighting school together. I did the first aid trauma team. Um, so we, we all spent a couple weeks at least in Colorado getting prepared to go back to Antarctica. And then they're off.
2: This year's recruits fly to Christchurch, a city in the South Island of New Zealand. From there, it's 2,500 miles and an eight hour flight over the sea to the edge of the Antarctic continent where a large research station sits on the ice overlooking the Southern Ocean. This base is called McMurdo. It belongs to the Americans, and it's just a stop-off for Rodney, Dave, Robert, and Gene. A chance to refuel before they're back on the plane. It's another 850 miles inland to the South Pole. The view out the window changed now from bright blue sea to a blinding absence of color. Here's Dave, the carpenter.
1: McMurdo, it's a little bit more like Alaska kind of feeling. There's mountains around. You feel like, okay, you're in the middle of nowhere, but the South Pole, it feels like you're on another planet. It's flat, white, Um, as far as you can see. You've flown for three hours in a plane to get there, and you can look out the windows. You're going higher, higher in altitude. All the mountains disappear by getting buried in ice. Mountains, like 10,000 foot mountains are buried in ice. And then you're up at two miles in altitude at the pole. You get off the plane and the cold air smacks you in the face because it's typically about 60 below zero Fahrenheit. You know, you breathe in that cold air. Gene, one of the astrophysicists. But,
0: you know, you, you, you pull your balaclava up around your face and you, you
1: breathe through that. It is biting to the bone. You start to immediately feel that around your, your eyes, if you're not wearing your goggles, your nose, you're obviously bundled up completely, your gloves, hat. On arrival at the pole,
2: you can get mountain sickness. Some people get so ill when they arrive with hypoxia, oxygen deficiency, that they have to be evacuated immediately. Almost everyone loses weight, up to 10 kilograms in their first month. Moving around is difficult, It takes 30 minutes to get dressed to
1: go outside, even when the sun is shining. It's extremely dry, um, typically like 1% humidity that time of year. It just dries everything out immediately, but it definitely felt like this is gonna be awesome. I felt like this is the most extreme on the planet I could get in the middle of nowhere at the geographical South Pole. And then I was gonna be there for the winter, six months of dark. I was looking forward to every bit of the experience.
2: Antarctica is a vast continent, six million square miles of glacial ice that never melts, even in summer. That ice, up to three miles deep in places, contains 70% of the world's fresh water. The South Pole lies somewhere in the center of the continent. It sits high up on the Antarctic Plateau, nine and a half thousand feet above sea level. About half a mile away from the pole, across the plateau and over a runway, there sits an American base, Amundsen Scott Station, named for the first two explorers to reach the South Pole. Rodney, Dave, Jean, and Robert all arrive at the base within a few weeks of each other in November 1999. In the northern hemisphere that they've just left, winter has set in, but at the South Pole, summer has arrived. Here's Gene, one of the astrophysicists.
0: You know, all of the research that's going to be happening over the winter has to be prepped for. So there's, you know, big teams of people from the universities or the research institutes or whatever, preparing their their equipment and prepping the people who are wintering over and all of that.
2: Wintering over is Antarctic lingo for the staff staying the whole winter. Rodney is a winter over, doing research for the University of Chicago and Dave and Gina are staying too. Robert's just here
3: for the summer. Every summer down there, you are so busy. So you basically you work long days, 12, 16 hours, and then you fall into bed, and then next day is the same thing again because you have a very short time to get your tasks done. You come in for meals um, and then rush back outside.
0: And then there was the Millennium. So, the, you know, there was a big party and... You know, we were all filmed and, you know, televised around the world.
2: It's the new year and the turn of the millennium. 1999 becomes 2000, and there's a momentary break from work. Rodney, a talented musician, has started playing in the station band. Rodney's on lead guitar and drums, and he's started dating the bass
1: player, an American woman called Sonia. Here's Dave. It was one of those things where I kind of envied the the ability to just pick up an instrument and play, and you could see that he played well. He played with his... he could feel the music. For Rodney's band, New Year was their biggest gig yet.
2: The South Pole celebrations are broadcast live across the world with their version of the Angels classic, Am I Ever Going to See Your Face Again?
1: I did want to spend the turn of the century at the South Pole. Every hour, you can celebrate it in a new time zone. A lot of people did that: just go out to the South Pole and just run around the marker, basically each each hour, and toast to the uh, new time zone.
4: They say nothing ever lasts
0: it's uh, maybe five minutes or so to sort of get out there and then do what you want to do, which is raise your glass, have a drink, run around
1: the thing, and then come back inside. It hurts. It freeze dries your your throat and you're hacking and coughing for typically two days after you're breathing so hard running the air going in your nose alone will start to you'll get frost nip and white spots on the edge of your nose and your hair freezes solid and you definitely you enjoy doing it but you you enjoy when it's done too everything's looking good for rodney
2: his work is going well and he and his girlfriend seem very much in love. Here's Robert.
3: was very um, similar to Rodney. She also played in the band, Um, very outgoing, friendly. Sonia,
2: who had originally intended to stay only for the summer, changes her plans to stay the winter as well. A friend says they make a striking couple. Rodney dyes his hair bright purple. She dyes hers green. Rodney and Sonia plan to marry, As soon as the winter's over when they get back home. Slowly the sun begins to set. The summer crew of 250 become 50 as the extra pairs of hands leave on the last plane back home in mid-February, Robert amongst them, and the station prepares for winter. The skeleton crew that's now left, which includes Dave, Jean and Rodney, is the biggest ever winter over group. 42 men, eight women. They've got six months of total darkness stretching ahead of them. Six months before the sun rises once more and before they'll see anyone from the outside world.
4: Stand on the Antarctic plateau, as I've done, uh, in the middle of nowhere, uh, 500 miles from the coast, uh, nobody else there except three companions, seven, eight and a half thousand feet up in the in the sky on an ice shelf. It's a really, really humbling experience. You are humbled by your your insignificance compared with this incredible mass of ice.
2: John Doodley has been going down to the ice since the 1960s. And for a time, he ran the UK's programme for research in Antarctica. These days, he's an historian and author.
4: I fell in love with the place the first moment I, um, I came in contact with it. And the first moment I came in contact with it was on a small ship called the John Biscoe, and we were sailing through some pretty big seas, and with the albatrosses wheeling by and everything. And suddenly, the sea started to calm down, and we were surrounded by mist. And as the sea calmed down, in the distance, we saw a white line, and that was pack ice. It's it, it's something which, on a ship, it fills all of your senses. There's the the sound, the motion as the ship bangs through the ice, the flows overturning, the colour. sort of a, 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 almost a symphony of monochrome. The penguins jumping off the flows, the hiss as the flows turn over. It, it was something which just captured my my whole spirit of course people don't realize that it's actually a desert no they don't uh, and they find that very surprising uh, but particularly because there is so much ice there but when you get inland uh, up onto the polar plateau mostly the precipitation is what we call diamond dust it's just little icy flakes coming down out of the air and when the Sun shining, it, it has an incredible grandeur all of its own because you get these little sparkling rainbows all over the place as the diamond dust settles. What do you, outside, what do you hear at
2: the South Pole?
4: Interestingly enough, I was asked by a journalist a few years ago to sum up my feelings of the Antarctic in in as few words as I could, and that was the sound of silence. Because in the winter, when the sea ice has formed and there's no wind and you walk out onto the sea ice you hear silence. There's no wildlife. There's nothing. And then you'll hear something. It might be an avalanche 50 miles away, and you'll hear it. It might be the ice just settling a little bit, so there'll be a creek as the sea ice settles a bit. It's remarkable.
2: It's this incredible stillness and dryness of the air that makes the South Pole uniquely ideal for all kinds of scientific research. The telescopes are so amazingly sensitive, any water in the air would mess with their findings.
4: For certain areas of astrophysics and astronomy, it's almost like being in space, because there is so little water vapour in the atmosphere. You can do experiments on the ground that you can't do anywhere else in the world.
2: It's March 2000, and the 50 members of staff staying at the South Pole for the winter, the Winter overs, are settling into their new routine. Rodney's spending every day out in the remote observatory where the telescopes are, studying the sky. This observatory, called MAPO, lies in the area known as the Dark Sector. This is where the astrophysicists
3: spend the bulk of their time, including Robert. And it's called Dark Sector because there were some light-sensitive experiments, so we try to keep it also dark um, visually in wintertime. To get from the
2: main station where Rodney sleeps and eats, out to Mapo, he has to walk about half a mile. This is a twenty minute trudge through the snow
3: across the station's small runway. So in winter time of course, there's no planes, no uh, problem, but in summertime you always had to look out for for planes if a plane was approaching. That would have been truly weird, to be at the South Pole and
2: and, and hit by an aircraft. (laughs) Yeah. Every day, Rodney dresses himself, heaves open the heavy-duty, walk-in, freezer-style doors that protect those inside from the bitter elements, and steps outside into minus 80 degrees Celsius. If he doesn't wrap up warm, he'll get hypothermia layer upon layer of thermals, gloves, hats, coats. Even in the summer, when I was there, you were wearing so many clothes. When we stayed overnight on the ice in a tent, we had to work our way into three sleeping bags, one on top of the other, all in our cold weather gear and with boots on. And that's just the summer. Winter is a different challenge altogether.
3: The station closes um, around mid-February, normally February 15th, and you still have five weeks before the sun sets, so in that time you prepare the station for winter operations. And one of the tasks is to erect flag lines between all the outside buildings. That means you put like bamboo poles with little flags, so even in a um, storm with blowing snow you can still see a few flags and um, you can't get lost because getting lost uh, could mean like you die. So on this walk, in the dark,
2: you were literally making your way from flag to flag, there were no lights?
3: There were no lights, no, but it's like... um I mean, if you've ever been in the mountains, um, you don't have any artificial light around you, but it's snow. So if um, there was um, good conditions, you could see definitely where the building was. Like it was still like a black shadow compared to the white snow. But as March becomes April,
2: and April becomes May, there's a shift in the atmosphere on base. There's a gym and a bar, and the crew team up for movie nights now and then. But without a sunrise or sunset to mark the progression of time, life on base begins to feel like one long day. Here's John, Antarctic historian.
4: You will have periods of depression in the winter. Winteritis, uh, sensory deprivation, when, when, when all you've got out of the window or out of the door of the hut is a white expanse. It's hard to cope with that sometimes. Particularly if you get what's known as a whiteout. Now, whiteout is a very curious condition. It's not a blizzard, people think, seem to think that a blizzard is a whiteout, but it actually isn't. It's when you have a flat snow snowplane with no features on it and overcast. So you can't see any feature at all, it's like being in the middle, standing in the middle of a ping pong ball. It's white all round, there's no horizon. But if there's a a mountain 10 miles away, you'll see it. You just won't know how far away it is.
2: Almost like a mirage in the desert. You don't know.
4: Oh, oh, yeah. Well, you literally could walk over a cliff and not know it was there if it was an ice cliff. It's a very, very disorientating experience, Whiteout.
1: Here's Dave. You've got to be comfortable in your own head. Everyone's got issues and thoughts and past and history, and you. When you take every all the distractions of the real world away, those tend to come more to the surface. And then you think about those things more and more and more and more. And then you're, by the time you're sick of thinking about those things in your own head, you've still got four or five months of dealing with it. And you're with a small group of people and you get to know everyone very, very intimate, which comes with its own curse because you After six months of sitting at this table with someone having breakfast or dinner with them, everything kind of gets drained. All these conversations, there's nothing fresh to talk about. How do you think you'd cope?
2: Locked down with 49 other people for six months, constant darkness. There's no way in, no way out. The nearest station is 800 miles away, where the Russians are. Jean has a story that shows the limits staff can be pushed to under these extreme conditions. It happened the same year Rodney's there, 2000. To support the bigger than normal numbers of staff wintering over, there were three cooks this year instead of two. That means three people working all day in a small kitchen that's designed for two. And one day, the sous chef and the baker have an argument.
0: I don't know whether it was about uh, if someone thought that they there was a number one and a number two or, you know, who, who was going to decide the roster and all those kind of things. They had a falling out, I think. And my understanding is that the Baker was effectively given some sort of ultimatum. Do your job or you're out kind of thing. So they quit. That's kind of how it was put, right? With one chef down, everyone on base has to chip in. That means when I now have to do the job of cleaning the tables for everyone else, then someone else is either picking up the slack for me, you know, they have to work a little bit harder, or that job just gets left and I have to work double time tomorrow to (laughs) make sure that my job gets done. The ripple
2: effects of this seemingly minor incident are anything but minor.
0: We went to two cooked meals Day, so hot breakfasts were off. Uh, you try telling trades type people that get up at 6 a.m. and are gonna go and work a full-on eight-hour day doing carpentry, welding, you know, machining, fitting, whatever else it is, that they're not gonna get the cooked breakfast that they signed kind of signed up for, right? You know, they that's the expectation. I'm going down there, it's gonna be a harsh environment, it's gonna be no sunlight for six months. I'm gonna get paid okay, but it's also not so bad because I'm gonna get fed, I'm gonna have this, I'm gonna have that. Well now they're being told you're not gonna get one of those meals.
2: Under such demanding conditions, some people begin to crack.
0: There were definitely people who were like, No way, this is this is bullshit, right? You know, I didn't sign up for this, There's no I'm not I shouldn't be cleaning tables and washing dishes. That event in itself, for a lot of people in the way it affected them on a day-to-day basis was (laughs) sad as it is, it's more significant than someone passing away who they didn't have to work with or deal with or anything, right? You also don't know how you're going to react to someone until you start living in their pockets. So let's say the screening process for the sous chef and the baker, there was probably nothing there that showed that they wouldn't be able to work together, you know, but you know, you put, sometimes you put two people together and, just doesn't work out.
2: This change that you see in people at the South Pole, Gene says it's called getting toasty.
0: When you first step off the plane and you start a time in Antarctica, you're a piece of white bread or just plain bread. And By the time you leave, you're burnt toast, right? So there's this phase that you go through about how toasty you are, all right? And if someone's starting to do weird stuff, they'd be, ah, guy's gone toasty. There's also what they call the thousand-yard stare. So there'd be a few situations where you'd walk into a, uh, a galley or, or, or another room or something, and someone might be in there on their own, or maybe they're not on their own, but maybe they're sitting off on their own, and they'd just be staring off into space. And you, you could you, if you just sat there and watched them, they could be like that for many minutes and like be completely oblivious to whatever else was going on. Can you just explain why it's called the thousand yard stare? Oh, because you stare off into the distance, right? So someone could wave their hands in front of your face and there's no no recognition that you are there. Here's
1: Dave Zabalski. Your reality kind of starts to change. You kind of forget about a lot of the things in the outside world and it seems so much more dramatic and such a big part of your life down there, it feels like it's everything. Um, So the deprivation of the sight, sounds, smells, people, the influences from the outside world are all gone. So then what is there in front of you just seems to boil up as it is everything. So people just, they take it way more serious sometimes than they should.
2: And so we come to the 11th of May, 2000. It's a Thursday in the depths of winter. Rodney's just finished his day at work, out at MAPO. He's walking back from the remote observatory to the main station, going from flag to flag in the pitch black, when he starts to feel ill. That night at dinner, he complains to his girlfriend Sonia that his eyes are hurting and he's finding it hard to breathe. He goes to bed early, which is unusual, but he doesn't sleep he tosses and turns all night. And each time he wakes, he feels terrible, almost like he's dying. Coming up on the Secret History of Antarctica.
4: All of a sudden, he fell ill.
1: It was just kind of chaos.
4: It was a bit mysterious and, you know, I
0: figured the doctor would handle it. It would have been harder to get out of the South Pole than it would have been to get from the space station for medical care.
2: The Secret History of Antarctica is a Crowd Network original. It's presented by me, Stephen Davis, and produced by Anna Stauffenberg. Mixing and sound design is by Rory Alscoy. The music we use is from our partners, BMG Production Music. Thanks to Luis Rodriguez at Sonic Space Lab Music for studio recording. Additional material in this episode, courtesy of Nataonga Sound and Vision. To binge the whole series ad-free and for exclusive bonus episodes, subscribe to the Crowd Stories channel on the Apple Podcasts app. You can also listen ad-free on Amazon Music. If you haven't already, listen to the first two Secret History series. The Secret History of Flight 149 is the tale behind how a passenger plane got caught in a war zone, leaving hundreds of people at the mercy of Saddam Hussein, hear from the human shields who were held hostage in Kuwait, and from those who've spent years searching for the truth. Series two, The Secret History of the Estonia, It's my investigation into what really happened when a passenger ferry sank in the Baltic Sea, killing 852 people. The story of secrets, smugglers and spies that leads back to the Cold War. Find both of those series on the same feed. Thanks for listening.